When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Not the Royal Wedding, the Daily Mirror's Republican podcast, an antidote to all the royal propaganda. This week's star guest is a writer, poet, and broadcaster. He's written more than 200 books, including Going on a Bear Hunt. He presents the Radio 4 series Word of Mouth, and he is a professor of literature at Goldsmiths University of London. He's also a former children's laureate. Welcome, Michael Rosen. Thanks very much, Kevin. Pleasure to be here. Did your laureate work require you to bow and scrape to the royals? Absolutely not. No, I don't think I'd have taken it if I had to. Um, No, it's a children's laureate job. My job was for children, so that was the only people. I was summoned uh, to uh, places very near to here. I had to meet the Minister of Culture, the then Minister of Culture, uh, Margaret Hodge. I had to meet the Secretary of State for Education, uh, who was at the time Ed Balls. Um, And I met various other people to do with education in the Department for Education. But above that layer, no, not at all. We're meeting in the Palace of Westminster. In the, in the circles you move in, writers. Are many of them royalists? Not many that I know of. I think uh, quite a few people are what you might describe as agnostic about it. In other words, they're things, well, it's what we got, so we might as well stick with it. Um, some people are quite against, and there's one or two who think that it's doing a good job. But I think the general view would be either Republican or agnostic about it. And why are you a Republican, Michael? Uh, I suppose in one word, because it's unnecessary. Um, And when things are unnecessary, then you start looking at other things as to why somehow or other it's in place. So, and also what maintains it. So if it's unnecessary, why are we spending all that dosh on it? Why have we got all these hundreds of grace and favour houses and huge tracts of land that are available for this particular small group of, uh, of people? And then we start, maybe I start asking questions about how does authority work in general in this society? How does it work? Why do we have a sort of pecking order where people bow and scrape if you're a sir or a lord or a baronet or a duke or an earl? And it's a bit like a pyramid. And it, it, I have to say, it does actually upset me that when a person appears in front of other people and they are a lord or a sir or a knight or indeed a sprig of the the royal family, people suddenly make themselves inferior. They suddenly cast themselves as if somehow or other they're lucky to have met a lord or lucky to have met a sprig of the gentry. And I just think, well, we're bigger and better than that. We're human beings, you know. We emerge into the world and we're all equal. So your opposition is part practical, part philosophical? Yes, and also part financial. Um, But the worst aspect of it, if you like, I think is this bowing and scraping thing, that we're we're diminished by it. And the moment you're diminished by it, I think that's dangerous for society, you know, because we never question then 
when we're diminished, we don't question the, the liberties that are taken from us, and that's both literal and metaphorical. The liberties that are taken from us by having a power that we imagine, it's spectral, it's, it's, it's like belongs to ghosts and fairies, that we imagine is somehow better than us. And then when we actually unpack it, we find that there are remarkable powers that are wound up and tied up with the royal family and the Church of England, because we have this established church in this country. And that, that does actually bother me, that Prince Charles, just to put it really crudely and nail it to one person for the moment, when Prince Charles opened his mouth about something, we're all supposed to stop and sit and listen. Why? Why? You know, Tom Paine, 200 and whatever it is years ago, said, you know, why are we asking, why are we listening to these people just simply by virtue of who their mum and dad are? You know, just because your mum and dad are X, Y and Z, because their grandfather, you know, because there's this supposed, you know, 1,000 or more years dynasty, much broken, let it be said, you know, that we should somehow or other listen to Prince Charles for that reason. Let him earn it. Let him earn the right to be heard. You're on the left of politics. You're always described as radical. You're a strong supporter of Jeremy Corbyn. Do you think you, we cannot... You know, we cannot achieve fundamental change in Britain if you have the monarchy over the top, legitimising unearned wealth, disparities in, in power? I don't think I would go that far. I think uh, Jeremy Corbyn has what seems to me uh, a very reasonable and moderate programme. It's what would be described in the rest of Europe as social democrat, maybe left social democrat, and you can have those kinds of policies with a royal family in place, as you do in Sweden um, and at times in Holland. I, I don't think that it's an obstacle in that sense. So I'm not somebody who says, well, you know, we've got to, you know, let's put the scaffold up in Whitehall, you know, um, like, it's still there, the building, the banqueting hall, you know, we've got to behead the royal family for us to somehow or other uh, achieve a perfect society. No, I'm not of that view. Uh, I think eventually my imagination would be that um, somebody like Jeremy Corbyn would come in, that it would be a reasonable kind of society that we would start all voting for and participating in, and it would become less and less necessary for the royal family. Um, there might have to be legislation, indeed. At the very start, I mean, the money and land is, is an offence in, in a society that we, it is claimed, you know, we're struggling to find money and to have this these vast tracts of land and this vast expense on, as it happens, including the royal wedding, no matter how modest that um, these two are trying to uh, run it, because they have, do have some sense of propriety, to be fair to them, um, that uh, it's not actually being rubbed in our noses in quite as badly as it has been in the past. Um, but, you know, uh, we've seen royals in other countries cycling about and being quite modest about it. Uh, we could certainly cut our lot down to size, if nothing else. If you come down to size, would you eventually like an elected leader, a uh, head of state, somebody to meet and greet, be that figurehead? I think the German system seems to work pretty well. Um, there seems to be a, quite a modest presidency that they have there, rather than the inflated presidencies of uh, America and France. You have this modest head of state who has to intervene at various times in order to make sure that, you know, if a coalition needs forming and so on, that it's done in a proper constitutional way. It's no big deal. Um, people, whenever you have an argument about this, they go, what would you put in place? Trump or something? And you go, well, no, let's have a look at the experiments that people have made across the world. And the German one seems to me to stand as quite a good example, worked out rationally, as it happens, ironically, by some powers who have monarchy, including us. We sat there working out the German constitution and didn't say they had to bring back Franz Josef 
We said, oh no, have an elected president. It's a really good idea. Good idea for them, but not for us. Huh? Now, I, I, look, I, I get annoyed as I read the papers, including my own, the Daily Mirror, watch TV, listen to the radio. There seems to be this constant barrage of you know, the royals are necessary, they cheer the country up, uh, you, you've got to have them. Do you, do you think if we, if we had a bit more balanced reporting and discussion, we'd find uh, that support for them would fall? Well, this is very interesting you're saying this because we use the word power and obviously here we are, we're sitting in this place, the Palace of Westminster, and we think of power in terms of people who've been voted and elected and through electoral colleges and their prime ministers and their ministers and we quite often leave out what is essentially media power. That is the power of the image and the sounds that is coming out of these places and its ability to affect our way of thinking. Now, sometimes it's not direct. It's not, you know, here is a statement and now you agree with it. It's much more in a kind of, again, I'm going to use the word spectral, in a more kind of ghostly-like way. In other words, they frame how it is that we see things. So if we're constantly being told what an incredibly nice guy Harry is, an incredible nice woman that his, his wife is, his wife-to-be, and what an incredibly nice person William is, well, then we go, what incredibly nice people they are. We haven't got any other frame of reference. Now... They may be, they may not be, but we don't actually question it. We have no means to question it. So I've heard people who, uh, you know, have been very antipathetic, very strongly against the royal family, particularly over the handling of the Diana case, again, very strongly against uh, Prince Charles and the rest of it. But somehow or other, which of course the House of Windsor is, is we have to say, is expert at, suddenly we have two people in Harry and Will um, who, oh, it's all going to be all right now. So there's a kind of... A blue blood wash going on here, a blue wash going on of how sweet and wonderful it all is. And this, of course, is daily promotion of these people, in itself costing millions because the coverage that is required, the cameras, the sound, the studios and all the rest of it, and this is another form of power. It's saying that these people are somehow or other special. It's quite clear that, you know, one way or another, you know, Will's clearly quite a nice bloke insofar as we're allowed to see it and you know he worked for air ambulance and so on it's a decent and good thing to do well you know he could go on doing that you know it's it's a great thing and if he wants to retire from that and be a security guard or something like that that you know air ambulance people or even better still go and be a paramedic or something be wonderful great good luck to you and if there is this funny connection you know with a, with this dynasty so be it you know you meet people who say well actually you know i'm the I would be the Duke of What's-It, but the line faded out. Well, let it be like that. It's just a sort of faded line of interesting, mild historical interest. You can buy some of the PR they get for free. Do you think there's a kind of deference in the media which then transfers to the country as a whole, or do you think the country as a whole is deferences to the media? Who, who's leading, who's following here? I think there's a sort of mutuality about it. You know, I can't deny that, is that... You know, the, the papers and the press constantly say it's in the public interest because the public say they want to know. And meanwhile, you know, so that, that's their defence. But at the same time, you know, there's plenty of push coming from their side, you know, in, in this kind of interesting interaction that goes on between public and press. We give the press what they, we, you know, they might say we give the public what they want, but at the same time they're pushing ideas, you know, after, you know a certain paper that we don't need to name, you know, has been carrying on a whole agenda about migrants for the last 10 years. You know, you can just find day after day after day these headlines about migrants. Well, you know, that's because they're pushing a policy on migrants. Yeah? So you have a similar thing with the royals. You know, it only needs Harry to, uh, you know, go and see a, a, wo a wounded soldier. And it's, it's banner headlines, you know, because it shows what a great guy he is. And, you know, he was a soldier and so on. 
we're getting back to kind of William the Fourth, you know, the the the, the idea of the, these guys being kind of battle-hardened leaders suitable for taking us through to being the great global trading nation. I mean, I can see a whole agenda going on about Britain redefining itself as this sort of post-imperial but still imperial power trading with the rest of the world and that ideal for this model of who we are, fantasy though it may be or not, we don't know yet, uh, is the royals standing there selling Melton Mowbray pies and um, Pontefract cakes. So it's kind of uh, hanging on to a glorious, often mythical past. You think of that imperial splendour, Britain a great nation in the world, embodied in the royals, when in fact the truth is, uh, is rather different, both about the past, when a lot of people were very poor, dying early of diseases, royals didn't really seem to care much about what was happening to, to ordinary people, working people, and yet now they're presented as that, that symbol yeah. of, uh, of, some, of something magnificent. Does that... Does that annoy you? It angers me. It, it, it more than annoys me. I'm up there with the anger on that one, yeah. I mean, let's tell the stories of the past. Sure, you know, what were these? What was going on in medieval times? What was going on in Tudor times? These people were butchering each other. You know, when, we, when they show us Henry VIII and then say that, oh, well, you know, he, he, was, he was fun, he was, the, he was the warrior king or he was the sort of glamorous prince and all the rest of it. The whole history of the monarchy... You know, in this country and in most countries, you know, these were these were warlords bashing each other to bits in order to secure this bit of land and this bit of castle and so on. You know, with absolutely they were amoral and immoral. They were without morals, and the morals that they did have were bad. You know, they were killing each other. They were press ganging people. They were exploiting people like unbelievably, so that you know the, the peasants were quite literally ground into the earth and so on. Let's not glorify these people. You know, it's, you, you watch TV of the past royals and there's a constant sense of the idea that it's a sort of unmovable, unshakable, long dynasty, you know, carefully leaving out the various times there were hiccups, the various times that uh, they suddenly had to scrabble around in Europe to find somebody some, with a spurious link to the royal family, which is what happened in George I. The whole rigging of it in order to keep Catholics out to make sure the right Protestant was in, you know, all this sort of stuff. Um, you know, it, it's it's just absurd the idea that this is somehow or other a you know they've passed it down from man to boy, man to boy down through the line, and that this gives us some kind of virtue uh, and across history in a way that is totally false. I mean, the historical picture they present, exactly as you've said, you know, you get more you get more reality from Shakespeare than you do from a program most programs about the Tudors that you watch on the telly. Do you think we need, as, as Republicans, to to reclaim history, uh, promote a people's history, instead of the you know, the history that is often pushed and it's all about leaders uh, rather than what was happening on the ground in homes, in factories, workplaces, on the, on the land? And it, if you see it through you know, eras, for instance, the Victorian era, and of course you know, there's. Victoria on the top, but there's all sorts happening elsewhere. People struggling for better, for better housing, job rights, pay, yeah. And, yeah, and the vote. And yeah. we need, we need, you know, in order to move forward, we need to reclaim our past. Absolutely. I often think, just think of schools. Okay. So I went to a school. My my, my first secondary school was founded in 1933. Okay. So it was a county grammar school. Okay. Now. That building is now no longer a school. The people who belong to it, they sort of try and occasionally keep in touch, right? My other school 
was a great foundation school, Watford Boys Grammar School. It's a great foundation school, founded, I think, originally in the early 18th century, and so on. And when you look at this, and you look at the way in which people memorialise not only themselves, but the media that they are in, you find that, of course, the upper classes memorialise themselves through their ancestral homes, through their schools, so they can say, yes, well, I went to Harrow, or so, and they can go there, and there is this line, even though the school itself was snatched from the hands of the poor in order to establish it, which is quite often the case with the big public schools, but in a sense, they can buttress their lives, and they're there in the history books. They open the history books, and there's Lord Watsit, and there's so-and-so, so-and-so, and he's my great-uncle. And then the mass of people who have provided the wealth of the country and built things, you know, you go out there and look at that road. Who built that road? Where's the, where's the sign on that road that says Paddy Maloney helped build that? And too bloody right, it would have been Paddy Maloney, who slept over, who slept over from Ireland with his mates, possibly, you know, died young, possibly killed in a, an industrial accident. You know, there's the occasional book, you know, famously Terry Coleman wrote the wonderful book, The Railway Navvies, or The Navvies. And people went, what? You mean all these roads and canals were built by the Irish? God, I didn't know that. Oh, yes, they were. And we could go on like that. And these people are largely unmemorialised. You take a wonderful tunnel that I travel on every other day underneath the Thames, and it says it was built by Eisenbach Kingdom Brunel. Well, he had a big spade, did he? He went there <laughs> digging underneath the, underneath the Thames. How many people died with this thing that he invented, which was called the shield, in order to build that incredible tunnel? It's the first proper railway or road tunnel, railway tunnel underneath the river. It's an incredible feat of engineering. Well done, Brunel, for devising it. Well done, the hundreds of guys who sat there with raw sewage coming down on top of their heads while they dug under the Thames, and I'm the beneficiary of it, and I can't thank anybody. But I can thank, you know, Monty for winning at El Alamein, even though there were thousands of troops, of course, who died and fought in that battle, a crucial battle in the Second World War. And so it goes on. There's a way in which we don't know how to celebrate the way this country was built and made. We can't even do it in education, in the institutions that were invented. I mean, if you say, I mean, I happen to think comprehensive schools are really important. Who invented the comprehensive school? Is it is a name? No. We all know the names of, you know, the great Henry VIII grammar school and the great this, that and t'other. So there's a horrible anonymity. And if you like, the flip side of that is how non-anonymous the royal family are, who do virtually nothing, and how anonymous the mass of the people are in building and making this stuff. I mean, we're sitting in a building. I bet you there's no plaque in here that says actually who built this building. No, it's Westminster. Not. You know, great figurehead, the mother of all parliaments, blah, 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 blah. You know, we've got fine carved ceiling. Who did that? Who, made, who did the ceiling? You know, we don't know, do we? No, the, the, the working men and the probably more mainly men, but probably some women are completely forgotten. Yeah. But at least Brunel was there helping, designing, Indeed. overseeing. Yes, with the royal family, they just kind of pass on through a bloodline with, as you, as you said, you know, there's breaks and new, new royals are brought in and yeah. so on. They just seem to sit there and, and do nothing but want to take credit. Yeah, well, we've got to remember that right up until, I suppose you could say, round about 1650, people really did believe in the divine right of kings. So that is to say that there was a line between God in heaven... Jesus and kings and queens of England and people genuinely believe that the whole fabric of society depended on this link between them as believers Christian believers the royal family and God in heaven that this was crucial 
and that if you took out that key stone, that brick that is the royal family, then the whole of society would fall apart. And also it gave them the right, and you see it you know, carrying on much longer with the Tsars in Russia, that they, it gives them the right to rule and to decide, and that if you could beg for forgiveness, and then maybe the Tsar or the king would say yes one day and no the next, and so be it, because you know, that's, they, they were operating either consciously or unconsciously with the power of the Lord on high. So that, by and large, there'd be very, very few people, even Rhys Mogg, I should think, doesn't actually believe in the divine right of kings. But there is a way in which that, and I'm going to use the word again, spectral power, the idea that it's somehow or other invested in this thing you can't actually touch, but it's got a religious quality about it, that somehow or other it survives, that somehow or other there's some magic. You know, you'll see someone like Penny Juna, she'll talk of the magic of the royalty, and I think, what? You look at these people, utterly fallible. Why shouldn't they be? So am I, so are you. Of course they're fallible, but why pretend otherwise? Why, why inflate these very ordinary people who just happen to have got a lot of dosh, you know, into somehow or other with some magical properties? The only magical properties they've got is that they can, you know, wave a hand and 24 million comes over to them in order to get married. I mean, not so bad, you know. Did you, how much did you spend on your marriage, Kevin? Uh, certainly not that. Oh, uh, come on. No, no come no, on. Yeah. We know, really. About 24 million. Yeah, we had to get married in a hurry. Yeah. But, uh, oh, <laughs> all right, 22 million. <laughs> OK, I'll cut you down to size. Yeah. No, but you know what I mean. I mean, yeah. you just think that's where the, the, the spectral power yeah. comes from, is the fact that we're constantly shoving these glorious you know, media that we have at our disposal, and they say, go on, appear. Come on, Prince Charles, give us an Easter message. What have we got to do? Oh, we've got to be good. Oh, thank you. Whew. And I was lying there wondering, what have I got to do? And then I've listened to Prince Charles. I mean, why? I didn't, as it happens, but, you know, I picked up <laughs> yeah. that's what he said or something like it, or it's very bad that people are doing this, and you think, well, you know, why, am I, why would you be the person to tell us? Like that family is overprivileged, self-entitled, but how do we, as Republicans, convince people who are still under their spell that there is a better way in Britain than sitting as subjects of a monarchy? Well, indeed, that, that of itself is, pro- is the, the word that is the problem, the fact that we're technically not citizens but subjects. I, I've forgotten what it now says on the passport, wherever that's made, um, that... Uh, I'm not quite sure what we are, but I think somebody once, when I said I'm a citizen, once told me, no, you're not, you're a subject. And I thought, well, really? Because, you know, the whole idea of subjection, we generally think, is a bad idea. But suddenly, you know, because we live in Britain, we should be proud that we're subjected to the power. Um, I also resent the fact, um, before we get into what happens, is, is this thing about the relationship with the church. I mean... This is a multicultural, multi-faith and non-faith society. The idea that the state itself is defined with one particular group of Christianity, one particular section of Christianity, and that the head of state is the head of that church seems to me utterly, utterly wrong. There's a, there's a basic aspect of human rights involved in that. The right to be an atheist, the right to be a Hindu, the right to be a Zoroastrian, the right to be and to have total equality with people in the C of E, to people in the, in the Catholic Church. You know, these should all be indivisible, absolute rights embodied in the citizen. And they're not in this country. And so, you know, when they say, oh, well, there's been this terrible accident, 
and there's going to be a service, and then the service is either in St Paul's Cathedral or Westminster Abbey, and it's conducted by the Archbishop or somebody like that. That's connected to the royals, that is. That's because of the way we're structured in this country. And I find that, you know, quite... I mean, it's odd, apart from anything else, but offensive. And, and my feeling is, is that that feeling around that will develop when people will say, well, why... Why is this going on there? Why is the Archbishop of Canterbury doing that? I'm nothing to do with that. Either I'm a non-believer or I believe something else. And so on. So why, why am I being sort of dragooned into that? When you go to other countries, say like France, they have a notion of that these things can be carried out in a secular way. You know, that, that secularity or laicity, as they call it in France, was basically won in around 1900. And they don't bother with this stuff. You know, you have the office of the head of state, which has some problems, but anyway, it's the office of the head of state, and then it comes down from there. All these awful things that happen, or the beautiful and wonderful things that happen, Olympic Games and the rest of it, are separated from this weird, you know, legacy of divine right of kings. It belongs to us, the people. It belongs to elected people. So, you know, people chose to have Emmanuel Macron, so when if he, they had an Olympic Games in France tomorrow, he turns up, he's their elected officer. He's acting on their behalf. I, I don't, these people, they're not acting on our behalf. Yeah. So at some point or another, these crucial aspects, I think people will find it odd and strange. And indeed, the more they travel and see the way other countries do it, I, I, that's one way, I think. I don't think we're of a time when this involves demonstrations and that sort of thing. I think it's inappropriate. And anyway, people get offended by that. And somehow or other, the transition to a republic, to my way, of thinking has to somehow or other operate in a way that is not necessarily directly offensive. That's to say that it, sh it should evolve as an act of rationality because what we want to replace the monarchy with is rationality, which is, do we have the means and the ability to choose who we want to rule over us? Yes, we do. And what will you do that's democratic on uh, May the 19th when... Road closures in Windsor create terrible traffic uh, jams in that of Berkshire town. I'll get up, I'll make my missus her cup of coffee, uh, which I always do. The telly will be off, the radio will be off on that day, definitely. I mean, usually the radio's on, but definitely won't be on. Um, and then I'll go and stand out in the garden and scratch myself, which is what I tend to do. Uh, I'll look up um, who's playing in the two teams for the cup final, have an argument with my 13-year-old about whether the teams have been chosen well and which countries they played for in the past. We always have arguments about that. And basically wait for the cup final, uh, watch that, argue again with my son about whether that goal was offside or not. Um, and I might get through the whole day without actually mentioning the RF uh, phrase, Royal family. Might, <laughs> might, might just get through the whole day not actually mentioning them. We live in hope. Uh, <laughs> Michael Rosen, thank you very much for joining us on Not the Royal Wedding. Kevin, thanks very much for having me. Right, joining me for this week's Not the Royal Wedding quickfire 10 questions and answers is Labour MP Chris Williamson, Derby North, former vegan Britney, big supporter of Jeremy Corbyn. In your office, Chris, I can see there's a picture of Che Guevara over your shoulder. Che Guevara and Rosa Luxemburg down the other end, and Keir Hardy, of course, there. We like to venerate great figures from the Labour movement. Blimey, you have got them all here, haven't we you? Have indeed. You have got them all. Uh, when were you uh, a Republican? From what age? When did you realise that you weren't into the monarchy? Uh, probably from the tender age of about... 
16 or 17, I think. My dad was always a pretty strong Republican, so it might even predate that, to be fair. Uh, in fact, at the end of the Second World War, he told me a story where he was made to parade in the pouring rain with his uh, fellow um, infantrymen, and they didn't know why, he said it was pouring with rain, and then the rain eased off and, and stopped, and then this open-top car came down the street, and it was to take the king's salute. And so my dad was pretty indignant about that, one, because he was a publican, but secondly, all of the medals that my dad had been awarded uh, was being supported by the king, and so uh, in a fit of pique, he decided to put them in an envelope and send them back to the Ministry of Defence with uh, a, a very terse message saying you can stick these up here when the sun don't shine. Was that quite a wrench for him to do that? Um, He'd earned his medals. He had earned his medals, yeah, but he just, he just felt that it was... Um, it, de- it sort of undermined, it denigrated, really, it, it, the the sacrifice that, that he made and all his friends that he'd seen get killed and injured and maimed in the war. And, uh, yeah, he was having none of that anyway, so he sent them back. Well, man of principle. It was indeed. All right, here we go. Quick uh, ten questions. Have you ever met a royal? I, I wouldn't say met. I... Uh, was fairly close once to Prince Charles on a couple of occasions actually when I was what out. friendly terms close no 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 when I was out well, I used to be a member of the Hunt Saboteurs Association and he was out with the Quorn Hunt on one occasion and with the Medal Hunt uh, on another and uh, on the second occasion I said that he was a national disgrace as someone who claims to care for the environment yet was out killing wildlife for fun and his riposte was oh do shut up uh, and then uh, he tapped on the Range Rover of, um, I think it was his security people, and then they followed me around for the, for the rest of the day. Wow. If you bumped into the Queen, what would you say to her? Abdicate. Have you ever sang God Save the Queen? When I was a kid, uh, but uh, not for a long time. And in fact, I've uh, always refused to uh, sing the National Anthem and at the, at the, um, at the uh, uh, Senator in Derby. Uh, the uh, hold on, what's going on it's a working office. This as uh, you know, there we are. <laughs> <laughs> Shows um, it's live recording. Indeed, right. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. On Remembrance Sunday at uh, the marketplace in Derby, um, I always attend there to sort of show my respect, but but always refuse to sing the national anthem. And uh, one of the Conservative MPs, who is now a sorry Conservative councillor, big important, who is now a Conservative MP, Pauline Latham, made a big song and dance about this on one occasion, complained and wrote to the local paper. But the response was really heartwarming from a lot of people of my dad's generation who responded to say, "That's why we went to war to secure freedom of speech," and they very strongly supported my right not to sing the national anthem. Yeah, that's interesting. That and uh, what would you do with Buckingham Palace? Turn it into flats or a hotel? I think probably flats. There's a massive housing crisis, isn't there? People sleeping in shop doorways in the sixth richest nation on earth. It's an absolute disgrace. And the, 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 uh, the discrepancy between the rich and poor is, is, is quite appalling in this country. And so, therefore, rather than a hotel, because it would be some, no doubt some swanky, smart hotel that can be used by the elites and the very wealthy oligarchs that to tend to sort of frequent the streets of London these days, I think probably flats would be a better use for it. If you were really hungry and you only had the choice of a, so- a swan sandwich or a Dutchy original biscuit, which would you have? Well, as, as a vegan, I certainly wouldn't have the swan sandwich. Um, I'm not sure whether the Dutchy originals are vegan, and uh, I've seen them in Waitrose, but I obviously steadfastly boycott them. I've never quite looked at the ingredients, but I suppose if they were a vegan biscuit, that would have to be the choice. And um, what's the best thing you could say about Prince Charles? 
that's a tricky one. Uh, probably he is uh, concerned for the environment, notwithstanding his, his hypocrisy, but uh, the fact that he does speak up for the environment and uses influence uh, for that, I think, is quite uh, a positive thing, and uh, that's probably the most positive thing I could say about him. Mm. Tory MPs want to buy the monarchy a new royal yacht. What would you spend a spare £100 million on? Well, there's so many things. Our public services are in absolute crisis at the moment. They've been starved of resources, but you could invest it in uh, recruiting some more nurses, doctors, uh, social workers, put it into social care. There are so many other things that could be usefully... Uh, that money could be usefully used for uh, rather than a, than a royal yacht. Listen, the, the Queen is one of the wealthiest uh, people in the world. If she wants a new yacht, let her buy one. Yeah. And is Meghan Markle a good catch for a very fusty institution? Oh, I think she might be. I mean, a bit like Princess Diana, maybe. Uh, she, she might actually modernise it, maybe even get to the point where we could see the uh, monarchy as an institution being replaced uh, with a more democratic uh, uh, head of state. Um, I think we were kind of moving in that direction uh, with uh, Princess Diana's um, uh, association with the with the royal family back in the in the nineteen nineties. And uh, who knows? Maybe she could have that effect in the same way that Diana did. And what will you be doing on Saturday, nineteenth of May, when road closures bring yep. traffic chaos to Windsor? Probably watching the cup final. Certainly won't be uh, watching anything to do with the royal wedding. And who would you vote for as the first democratically elected head of a great British republic? Well, there's a few good candidates, but I think Arthur Scargill would probably have to be up there for me. He was uh, probably the, one of the best trade union leaders uh, that this country has ever seen. Uh, led the miners with great distinction um, and I think could, uh, could bring a lot to the office of head of state. Chris Williamson, thank you very much. I think we can say goodbye to your knighthood. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's probably true. This week's Mythbuster from the group Republic on Not the Royal Wedding destroys the idea the royals are good for tourism. According to Republic... Even Visit Britain, our national tourist agency, can't find any evidence for it. Chester Zoo, Stonehenge and the Roman Baths are all more successful tourist attractions than Windsor Castle which is the only occupied royal residence to attract visitors in large numbers. If Windsor Castle was included in the Association of Leading Visitor Attractions list of top attractions, it would come in at number 24. Research shows that tourists come here for our world-class museums, beautiful scenery, fantastic shopping and captivating history. Not because they might catch a glimpse of Prince Andrew. In a republic, royal properties such as Buckingham Palace would be open all year round, so visitors that do want to explore our royal heritage would have even more opportunity to do so. France has more visitors than Britain and we know what they did to their royals. Thank you for listening.